Hi there, welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory issues around the globe. My name is James Paniki. I'm from MLEX's Asia-Pacific team. Now, it feels like everyone these days has a strong opinion about Brexit and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But the UK's departure from the EU has become bogged down in the more technical aspects of state aid, something that may not fire up people's imagination as much as Bojo, but is nonetheless central to the debate and will rely on the usual erudition of our correspondent Simon Zakaria for the lowdown on that story in just a few minutes from now. First up, though, let's cross to Japan, where our reporters have been run off their feet over the past weeks with two significant events unrelated yet somehow connected. The first we'd all seen coming, the final days of Kazuyuki Sugimoto's chairmanship of the Japan Fair Trade Commission, or JFTC. His successor, Kazuyuki Furuya, is now running the operation, and today we'll assess both Sugimoto's legacy and Furuya's CV. Then, of course, came the unexpected political development, the resignation of Shinzo Abe, Japan's Prime Minister, and the appointment of Yoshihida Suga to the top job. Toko Sekiguchi is a senior reporter with MLEX, and she joins me now from Tokyo. Uh, Toko, starting with the conclusion of Sugimoto's term at the helm of the JFTC, how would you characterize his leadership? Well, um, he came into office in 2013, just as the number of large-scale um, cartel and bid rigging cases were declining. Um, some people say it's due to uh, you know better compliance uh, among companies, but cartel enforcement has been gradually been declining on sort of a global scale. And some say that it's due to the spread of leniency, et cetera, et cetera. But either way, um, during his reign, essentially all these cartels and bid rigging um, cases were replaced by um, online companies and data economy and how to deal with these uh, new companies. And so his reign stood out in that it came at a time when the global economy was uh, transforming from the traditional, you know, producing goods to online um, retail and data economy. And so the government, you know, governments the world over look to antitrust laws to deal with these new companies because, um, you know, the, the speed at which these companies were changing and dominating the sector, there weren't any uh, existing ways to regulate these, uh, these um, big tech companies. And so what he did was uh, under, or what the JFTC did under Sugimoto was um, he expanded the application of antitrust laws um, to uh, corporate data usage of personal information through a very specific um, antitrust tool that is uh, written under the Anti-Monopoly Act in Japan, which is the Abusive Superior Bargaining Position. And um, he also expanded that to apply to labor market um, freelancers and agent-driven sectors like uh, sports and entertainment. Well, let's talk about his relationship with digital platforms, which is in many ways the, the defining issue of the moment. How did the JFTC transform or apply antitrust laws to the platforms under Sugimoto? So uh, the JFTC under Sugimoto really kicked off its uh, digital um, economy transformation um, in a data report that it issued in 2017. 
And uh, one of its significance was that it was actually one of the first jurisdictions to explain in detail the antitrust authorities' thinking on the data economy. And following that, uh, the JFTC has conducted uh, a few market surveys, including online retail, um, smartphone app stores, user generated restaurant review sites, online ads. Also, online travel agency sites. And、uh, the JFCC also ha-、uh, were investigating Amazon and、uh, Rakuten, which is actually Japan's biggest、uh, online shopping mall.、Uh, both cases uh, ended in、um, sort of volunteer、uh, commitments. Sugimoto also told us that the JFTC's probe into Apple's App Store is still ongoing. Under Sugimoto, the JFTC also updated its、uh, merger guideline to reflect the value of、uh, data as well as keeping a lookout for killer acquisitions. Now,、uh, competition authorities around the world are facing very similar challenges. Our readers would, would know that only too well. Was there anything in particular that Sugimoto did that stands out in your mind? Yeah,、um, one of the th- key things that he did was to sort of elevate. Uh, this antitrust tool that I mentioned earlier, this、uh, abusive superior bargaining position. And、uh, traditionally, what that does is、uh, it applies to big national or regional retail chains and their relationship with、uh, smaller suppliers. And when you, know, you have a big retail chain that has a superior bargaining position over the smaller suppliers and is abusing that power, then the Japanese antitrust authority can go in and regulate that.、Um, what Sugimoto actually did was use this tool to apply to the relationship between online platforms and、uh, individual users. Who supply the platforms their personal data in exchange for the services?、Um, normally, this, is, this tool is applied to businesses,、uh, the relationship between businesses. And this was the first time that the JFTC said that、uh, it would apply to a relationship between companies and individual consumers. Also, and this is not、uh, actually platform related, but he also used this tool to go into the labor market. In that he applied this to the relationship between individual freelance workers and their、uh, contracting companies. And、uh, under the freelance worker、um, category are athletes and、uh, entertainers and performers. And so, by doing this,、um, not only did he expand the, the application of the、uh, abuse of superior bargaining position. He also brought the JFTC into the public、um, spotlight because normally、uh, the average Japanese doesn't really care much about you know, cartel cases or bid rigging cases. But when you're talking about、um, professional athletes or celebrities or movie actors and actresses, you tend to be interested. And so you know, it's one of the few cases where the JFTC came up a lot in big. Um, entertainment,、uh, news magazines, and、uh, TV shows. <laughs> There's nothing like a bit of、uh, celebrity pull power, is there? Now, as、um, you and your MLEX colleague Sachiko Sakamaki have covered, the JFTC is now under new leadership. What do we need to know about Kazuyuki Furuya? 
So uh, Kazuki Furuya, he spent most of his bureaucratic career um, in the finance ministry, not unlike his uh, GFDC um, chairman predecessors. But his uh, sort of uh, main characteristic is that he was a senior official in the cabinet office. And the cabinet office is an agency which is located um, directly under the prime minister. And it also led the discussion of key competition themes like platforms and how to deal with mergers and shrinking communities and etc. And uh, while he was in the cabinet office, his boss or his um, boss's boss used to be uh, Suga. And Mr. Suga, who, who is, we should point out, yes, indeed, is the is the new prime minister. This is Yoshihide Suga. That is correct. Mm. And uh, it was actually a coincidence that their appointment happened in the same week. Um, we weren't expecting Prime Minister Abe to resign or for Suga to replace him. So this was this was not, you know, something that was uh, preordained. But um, what, what, what does stand out is that many of Suga's campaign promises happen to be deeply intertwined with the JFTC. Suga's position under uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was the, the chief cabinet speaker, which is sort of the number two um, role in, in the cabinet administration. And while he was uh, the chief cabinet speaker, he was really pushing for um, lowering mobile phone rates. And uh, that's a key issue, one or one of the key issues that the JFTC has been discussing with the communication ministry, because there's a lot of uh, concern over whether the major um, mobile carriers are impeding uh, competition from the cheaper carriers that are trying to get a foothold in the industry. Okay, Toko, so just returning briefly to Furuya, uh, so the, the the connection with the Prime Minister is clear, but what are likely to be some of his priorities in, in the new job? At this point, we're not sure yet. He just came into office, and at the end of the week, he held his very first um, press briefing with us. And uh, he did repeatedly stress the close collaboration that the JFTC should be maintaining with other ministries and the contributions that it should be making to the central government. I don't know if it's worth noting that Furia didn't really mention the independence of the JFTC as an antitrust watchdog, but given his proximity to Suga, it's possible that JFTC may play even a bigger role in substantiating some of the new prime minister's economic policies that are based on competition. Toko, it has been an eventful few weeks for you and Sachiko in the Tokyo office. I hope you can both relax this weekend. Let's talk again very soon. Thanks a lot, James. Toko Sekiguchi is an MNEX senior correspondent speaking to us from Tokyo. And we have plenty of reading for you on these significant developments at our website, including a piece of analysis by Sachiko Sakamaki and our editor-in-chief, Lewis Crofts, on Sugimoto's legacy. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com and click on the Insight Centre tab. Now, state aid rules and the enforcement that comes from the breaking of those rules is something that our reporters in Europe spend a lot of time covering – 
But it's not often that state aid makes headlines out in the real world. Yet, in recent weeks, the UK government's draft laws to change the divorce agreement with the EU has been reverberating around the bloc and has become a politically explosive domestic issue for the British government. Simon Zakaria is a senior MLEX correspondent in London and he joins me now. Uh, Simon, firstly, tell us something about what happened and also the context in which this has been taking place. Hi there, James. Good to speak to you. So, so this is really all about Brexit. The UK and the EU have already secured a divorce deal uh, for Brexit. This is the so-called withdrawal agreement. Uh, of course, the UK actually left the EU uh, at the start of this year, January the 31st. But they still have to negotiate a future trading relationship. And that's obviously the hard part. So the clock is ticking on this and they've got until the end of the year, December the 31st, to negotiate these final terms. Now, of course, these talks were always going to be tough. But the UK has essentially made it even harder by throwing in what amounts to a legal hand grenade. So um, the, Boris Johnson's government has proposed new legislation and it's called the UK Internal Market Bill. And these measures essentially talk about how the UK will manage its internal trade from 2021 without the EU rulebook. And the government says that the UK's four nations, so this is England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, operate different standards for goods. So if you say, talk about beef or car parts, trading in any goods at all, um, there are different standards between the different constituent parts of the UK. And so the government fears that there could be trade barriers uh, put up if regulatory conditions aren't aligned between these territories. And the real problem is that the bill in doing so uh, threatens to tear up parts of the withdrawal agreement if there is no deal on the future trade relationship. So it's a very important document, really. And and specifically at risk is a key section of this withdrawal agreement relating to goods flow and customs in Northern Ireland. Mm. All right, look, Simon, let's talk about the bill then. What uh, exactly does it propose? Uh, How does it uh, affect state aid policy? How would it affect state aid policy if it were implemented in its current form? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So this is the this is the key the key part of it. Um, the section of the withdrawal agreement that the that the internal market bill would essentially override is called the Northern Ireland Protocol, and this was a part of the divorce deal that was designed to avoid a hard border between Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK and obviously outside the EU now, and Ireland, which is part of the EU. And it's not only a, 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 a territory that obviously has commercial ramifications, it's highly charged because of the very troubled political history on the Irish border. And essentially the protocol has two main effects. It ensures that Northern Ireland would remain under certain EU rules after Brexit for flow of goods and customer arrangements. So this would be about, say, checks and controls of, of goods. And secondly, the, the protocol would ensure that EU state aid rules would apply to the UK as long as the aid affects trade between Northern Ireland and the EU. So um, it was quite a a significant protocol and and a a key part of the withdrawal agreement. And the problem is that the internal market bill, which has been proposed by the government, would change all this completely. 
Under the bill, it would allow Northern Ireland, Northern Irish goods unfettered access to the UK market without customs checks. And on state aid in particular, it would allow the UK to, um, to, to modify or reinterpret the rules. So in other words, uh, it would be the UK and not the EU that would set state aid rules on companies active in Northern Ireland. So it, it's, it's a big change, really. Yes. Well, why does this matter? I mean, why is state aid so significant and why does uh, this uh, bill and why do these proposed changes uh, really amount to what you described before as a, as a hand grenade? Well, as state aid is really important because a state aid is essentially how governments give aid to businesses. So that could be businesses in trouble or indeed businesses, of course, that need need of financial assistance. And state aid is inextricably linked to the state of competition. Uh, and, uh, of course, in, in this particular discussion, we're talking about competition both in the UK and the EU as a bloc itself. So for the UK, it doesn't want the EU to control its aid policy. That's evident. because They're saying, look, we're, we're out. We've voted for Brexit and we want to be free of the EU rulebook. And so for them, what they say is that, well, look, you know, we need to amend through the internal market bill. We need to amend the protocol because that is a safety. It's a safety net should the trade talks fail between the two parties. And obviously, at the moment, it seems that, that, that there is high risk that that could happen. And so uh, for the UK, it, it really says, look, this is our red line. There can't be any economic and regulatory border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. But on the opposing side, you've got the EU and they're saying, look, you know, we're worried that if the UK is given total control over trade and aid policy, it would be able to deregulate and undercut businesses. Uh, in Europe, so essentially giving UK firms a, a commercial advantage. Okay, then on a, a slightly different front, what about the UK's own state aid regime after Brexit? What can we expect there? How should um, how are things likely to unfold? So, with this discussion of state aid, uh, you have the e- the UK saying, you know, we want to leave the EU rulebook when it comes to t- state aid. So, the question is, what is going? What is the picture going to look like for the UK? after Brexit in terms of subsidy policy. And that's really a scenario that has yet to be fully developed. The the UK is essentially consulting on what the state aid policy will look like, who will oversee it, who will govern it, and and, and how it will be arranged. But it you know, this discussion is obviously very highly politically charged anyway, but they complicated the mix, the UK government, by making a separate pronouncement that the UK uh, will join the state aid regime in the uh, World Trade Organization as a kind of a, a nuclear uh, scenario. Uh, again, you know, if, if the trade discussions, future relationship trade discussions between the UK and the EU don't uh, uh, bear fruit. And, and that is obviously going to be something that will really concern EU negotiators uh, because, you know, uh, the WTO's subsidy regime has its own characteristics and that could affect the way, again, the way uh, competition or state aid uh, interact between the UK and, uh, and, and the EU itself. OK, so what happens next? Where do we go from here? What happens next, very prosaically, is that the, EU, the Internal Market Bill needs passing by UK lawmakers. And that's already uh, completed in the first stage because in the, uh, in the lower chamber of parliament, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has... In, in the parliament, he has a very strong majority and, and, and that helped him to, to, uh, to, to pass the bill. But that has to go now to the, to the upper chamber of the, of the parliament, the House of Lords, and they, they also have to vote on it and that could be more problematic. 
I mean, aside from this, there is a, there's an almighty row about the validity of the uh, internal market bill. Um, so first of all, you've got the EU saying that it's a, a breach of trust by the UK and in fact that the bill breaks international law. So there is all this pressure going on. In terms of the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson says he's in a good position because, you know, he has uh, a large parliamentary majority, but that doesn't uh, guarantee that the bill uh, uh, will succeed. And he's also said that if the UK and the EU can't agree a future trade partnership deal in time for the next uh, summit of heads of state at the European Council meeting on in mid-October, um, he's going to walk away from the trade negotiations. So he's really putting out this nuclear option. And uh, to, be co- to be quite honest with you, it's an option that nobody really wants. Simon, thank you so much for your work on this. Bye for now. Thank you, James. Thank you. Simon Zakaria is a senior correspondent for MLEX based in London and will post some links to his reporting on the Brexit state aid issue at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to MLEX's podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. If you're finding the podcasts useful or interesting or both or possibly neither, feel free to leave a review or get in touch via the medium of your choice. And if M&A regulation gets your heart racing, don't forget to listen in next week. I'll be chatting to Jenna Ebersol from our Washington DC team about the DOJ's revised merger remedies manual. There are indeed important implications there for those needing to clear deals in the US. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor here at MNEX. Thank you for your company. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.